Hello, Emma. Hi, Roby. And hello, everyone. You're listening to Zoology Ramblings, episode four. Ta-da! Woo! Exciting. So, yeah, thanks again. People have been tuning in, messaging us. We've got some really positive comments. Um, and we're going to stick with our usual theme of we're going to do an animal of the week and then a global conservation issue each and then a UK um, local one. Do you want to yeah. say what you're doing this week, Roby? Yes. So I am going to do my animal of the week this week is another extinct one because I, don't know, I have a aversion to doing living animals, it seems. Um, so I'm going to do the aurochs, um, which I was meant to do last time, but we didn't have time because we ramble and ramble and never stick to the format or the time schedule. Um, so I'm going to do the aurochs this time and I'm actually not going to do it as a conservation theme I'm going to do it as a species and then I'm going to come into the conservation of it astonishingly enough you can conserve extinct species I know shock horror um, so yeah I'm going to do the oryx this episode whatever you want to call it and then uh, me and Emma are both going to talk about the reintroduction of the beaver in the UK and then finally I'm going to do another reintroduction because I love reintroduction stories um, which is really recent actually and the reintroduction of the Tasmanian devil to mainland Australia that was really recent, wasn't it? It was like literally 15 hours ago, the the kind of article started coming out. which was exciting. Yeah, it popped up and I saw it on my Instagram and I messaged you and said, no, I'm not going to do beaked whales. I'm going to do devils because they're really, really recent. So, yeah, <laughs> hence why my knowledge might be a little bit um, lacking because that was I had uh, only a few hours to prepare for this. But it's fine. We're going to go with it. <laughs> no, that sounds really good. I'm excited to learn more about that and the oryx as well because it's a really cool idea um so yeah this week i'm going to talk about tardigrades um which are tiny microscopic little awesome things that you'll probably never see but they're everywhere um, <laughs> and then my world conservation is about vaquitas um which are these tiny little cetaceans um in <laughs> yeah tiny tiny so we'll talk about that and then yeah we'll ramble about beavers <laughs> we could ramble about beavers for a, a long long time i think we might have to do a whole separate episode just on beavers i think <laughs> i think we do because we want to go film them and stuff so yeah, yeah. this is the thing keep, this is keep an eye on the time this time because we did yeah <laughs> can you see the time because i can't um i can see the time yeah okay super duper do you want to start with um, Oryx? I will happily start with the Oryx. So if you haven't heard of an Oryx, fair enough, not many people have. It is, astonishingly, my favourite extinct species as of two weeks ago when <laughs> I really got into the Oryx. Uh, and yeah, so obviously in terms of domestic animals, we know dogs descend from wolves, cats descend from African wild cats, pigs are descended from the wild boar. But where do cows come from? So the cows uh, come from the oryx and the modern cow is actually a domestic subspecies of the oryx. So the oryx, for those Latin name people out there, I know you're out there somewhere. <laughs> I know you appreciate my Latin names. I haven't we can shout you. out to all our Latin names. Yeah. So the oryx is Bos primogenius or the first cow and western cattle are Bos primogenius taurus. There are three, sorry, there are two distinct lineages of cattle, taurine cattle or western cattle, which are descended from 
the Eurasian oryx subspecies, and then Indocene cattle, which are descended from the Indian oryx subspecies B. nomadicus. So that's why cattle in Asia and Africa look very different to the black and white dairy cows you see in the fields around here. Yeah. And do we maybe just want to confirm? So, because I know even one of our lecturers got this wrong. So this is oryx as in A-U-R-O-C-H-S. Yes. And it isn't uh, oryx, which is yeah. O-R-Y-X, which is an antelope. Also to... bovid. And, you know, we love bovids, but yes, different, different species. So oryx is singular or plural. But if you want to be really, really, really fancy, oroxen is the plural. And I love that. <laughs> I just really fancy now. <laughs> the name comes from ur oxen, which is Germanic for primal cow, which wow. I might put in my dating bio. <laughs> <laughs> So, they're massive, aren't they? They're Which... huge. They're huge. Oryx were enormous animals. We know that a full-grown male could look a two-meter person in the eye. So they were six foot tall at the eye. And unlike, you know, a fighting bull, which is pretty impressive, the oryx's horns were huge. They were double curved and they pointed straight forwards to, to really go for you. Um, and the bulls, there was massive sexual dimorphism. So the bulls were black with quite long legs, actually, hence why they were so tall. And the cows were kind of reddy brown and a lot smaller. Cows being females, obviously. I feel like we said this about the high arctic camel, but this is definitely not something you'd want to run into on a dark night. No, definitely not. And we know this because oryx were one of the most dangerous animals, for people at least, during the Pleistocene and the Holocene. A um, little bit of a tangent. Cows are also super dangerous. In the UK, five people are killed per year by cows. Really? Yeah. And in Africa, it's not, you know, the lions and the hyenas that get you. It's the buffalo. So bovids are dangerous and oryx were the most dangerous of the bovids. And that's kind of why I love them. Also, Julius Caesar, you know, the man himself, <laughs> conqueror of everywhere, wrote about them when he was on campaign in the Gallic Wars. Uh, and he, and I'm going to quote Caesar here, uh, are a little below the size of an elephant and of the appearance, colour and shape of a bull. Their strength and speed are extraordinary. They spare neither man nor wild beast which they have espied. Wow. So even Caesar was pretty, pretty in awe of the oryx. <laughs> There was like some, illus I don't know if that was Caesar or someone else, like an illustration of what they look like in the, like sort of a diagrammatic form. And they do, they look quite menacing. Yeah, they were huge. And we know that they were really dangerous to people because people interact with the, interacted with the oryx a lot. Um, weirdly enough, we have many thousands of oryx bones, but comparison to other species like mammoths and uh, giant elk and bison, we can tell that they were probably not the most common Ice Age megafauna. And yet there are more examples of us hunting oryx than any other megafauna in our history, which is it's crazy. So we were clearly had a complex relationship with them. Um, my favourite one. Kind of, isn't this a relationship that kind of it led people to kind of have this fascination for them and kind of want to bring them back? Yeah, I mean credit to the the one hunter who sat down one day and thought yeah I'm going to tame this massive wild animal which could kill me in a heartbeat um so there's a fantastic piece of iron age art called the the Gundestrup cauldron 
from Denmark. And it's got loads and loads of scenes of ancient carvings and stuff. And one of the most famous ones is a dying oryx, which has killed three dead dogs. And beside it, there's a sword wielding female hunter. Um, so we clearly, you know, we had a relationship with them. Um, and there's a huge wealth of artifacts of carved of oryx bone, horn, and there's so many skeletons we've got with spears in them and knife points in them. And yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, very impressive extinct cows. <laughs> there's also something, there was a bit of a question about this. Um, what is their associate, association with um, Nazi Germany? The Nazi Germany Association, um, which I will probably come into in my in the next podcast, because I'm going to talk about the reintroduction and rebreeding of the oryx. Basically, all the oryx genes still exist in modern cattle. And uh, Nazi Germany was doing this whole, you know, we were a really cool pseudo Roman Empire doing lots and lots of cool stuff. And there were these two brothers who I'll talk about more when I talk about um, the, the rewilding of the oryx. Um, but basically... Hermann Goering, the second highest man in Nazi Germany, sponsored them to backbreed the oryx and try to recreate the oryx by selective breeding of cattle. And it 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 kind of worked, maybe ish. We yeah, it's kind of up for debate. Um, but I'll I'll definitely talk about them in the next the next podcast. Okay, super. I think it'd be it'd be interesting going into that more because yeah, that's been quite a um. Kind of daunting task, kind of backbreeding to get these massive, <laughs> sort of two meter tall cows. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. And what I think is most interesting is of, about the oryx is that they were never the most common Pleistocene animal, and yet we hunted them the most out of any of them. And yet, you know, we hunted these more than we hunted mammoths. And yet, they survived for the longest out of all the Pleistocene megafauna. They went extinct globally in. 1627. That's really recent for kind of that yeah. kind of mother fauna. That's after Henry VIII and that's after the gunpowder plot and you know mammoths went extinct with the Egyptians but this is really 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 late. Um, so we lost them in Britain before they reckon before 1000 BC um, but in mainland Europe Poland interestingly enough was the last stronghold of this species in a forest called, I'm definitely going to mispronounce this, Yaktoro. Yeah, very, very cool. It kind of sounds like the place that should have an oryx in it, you know? Yeah, just like one of those menacing kind of, you just walk through the forest at night and then you just, this massive cow just comes out of nowhere. I can kind of see that. <laughs> yeah, the cool, the, the, the biggest of the bovids. Um, and so this forest was a, a royal hunting reserve for the Polish nobility. And in a weird example of early conservation, the the Polish king actually employed special rangers to supplement their winter feed and chase any who stumbled into farmland back into the forest. Um, and so the population there actually was kind of successful for a few centuries. Um, and then, every, you know, once or twice a year, the royal court would come and hunt them. And they had these weird traditions with the hunting of the oryx. So before the animal was like fully dead, They'd cut the curly hair on the forehead between the horns and they'd turn it into a belt that had the magical power to give an easy labour to pregnant women. What? <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. There's, that's one of the most unusual traditions I've heard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, each to your own, but that is a bit weird. <laughs> but even 
even weirder one is what they did with the heart. They cut the heart out, and inside the hearts of all bovids and all ruminants is a actual a weird ossified bone, the os cordis, which basically supports the aortic valves. And this bone also grants easy pregnancy. And so what I want to know is why were the Polish nobility just really, really, really keen on really, really easy pregnancies regarding this specific animal? Like, could not a domestic cow have done this? <laughs> It seems like a bit of a long-winded process to kind of make labour a little bit easier yeah. if you have to go hunt this this oryx in a in a Polish forest. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so the last oryx did survive for a few centuries in Yaktoro forest, um, but in the end they succumbed uh, to what is known as an extinction vortex, which is a really cool sounding but also quite sinister sounding um, concept. So it's when problems which we see around us all the time, like encroachment on forest, overgrazing, poaching, deforestation, result in decreasing in population size, which causes problems with inbreeding, which magnifies the loss of even small individuals, which then cause further loss. And it's this whole spiraling vortex the species can't recover from, um, which is, you know, probably what we're seeing with tigers and Javan rhinoceroses and Sumatran rhinoceroses at the moment which is really sad no it's sad but um it's only i hadn't heard that term before but it was it's kind of yeah uh, to be an extinction vortex it just makes it sound a lot more kind of permanent and irreversible yeah and really applicable to almost any species you could name today um so by 1620 there were just four left three bulls and one cow and in 1620 all the bulls died and his horn was preserved as a drinking horn. So, you know, that's something at least, I guess. Or is it not? Is that just really cruel? Probably really cruel out of thought. <laughs> um, and another really sad bit of terminology, the last cow died of old age in 1627, and she was called the Endling, because she was the last of her species. Really sad. Yeah, and then the, the oryx was extinct. Um, this is a conflicting kind of it was an attempt to bring them back but then you've also got the sad ending of kind of this vortex yeah. And, endings and yeah but we owe a lot to the oryx the domestication of the oryx changed the world literally it kick-started the agricultural revolution when we domesticated the cows and from these two small founding oryx domestication events one in europe one in well i say europe it was definitely in turkey um, and basically everything was domesticated in, in Turkey as a general rule. <laughs> and then one in India. Uh, there are now 1.5 billion cows alive today. Wow. So in a small way, the oryx is still with us because they are the third most populous vertebrate species on the planet after chickens and humans. So there's a little bit of oryx left there somewhere. That's, that's the, I think the, the scale of, of livestock um, obviously credits to Oryx and kind of the domestication process but it's just the scale is phenomenal and um, maybe we should mention that a little bit so it was, it was the latest um, documentary that has just come out um, David Attenborough's one um, what is, is it a life on earth a life on our planet a life on our planet yeah and in all the titles of his last most populous <laughs> um, planet earth a life life on earth <laughs> but that touched quite a lot on livestock and just how much of sort of the animals on our planet today are 
livestock or sort of cattle um how much of sort of poultry like the um, how many of how many birds on our planet are now poultry um so things like chickens I, th- I thought it was quite quite shocking sort of the scale of yeah the- they had a, they had a really cool I think it was like a pie chart uh which popped up about the proportions of vertebrate species and it was something ridiculous I don't know if the I think it was above 60 percent of all vertebrate biomass is humans and our domesticates yeah which is yeah, I think it was 60 and it, it makes it makes those herds on the serengeti look like nothing really yeah it's if yeah if you haven't watched it i'd thoroughly recommend you do it's got bits that are very um quite hard hitting um because it does address a lot of issues that we have caused and solved sort of issues that the legend that is david attenborough has seen in his lifetime and kind of him looking back and kind of saying how it would be wrong for him to have seen all this happen and not spread the message about how we need to change and and what needs to happen so it was quite moving really yeah and there was what I thought was quite cool about it is he had a counter as he went as he went through all the stages of his life on this uh on this documentary uh they had a counter of world population um, atmospheric CO2 levels um, and percentage of wilderness lost and it was it was going you know quite steadily down with the wilderness lost sorry quite steadily up with the amount of wilderness lost um, you know population was going up um, uh, atmospheric carbon was going up and then there, there was this time between I think it was 1960 and 1970 when suddenly it accelerated massively and it went from I think five billion to like seven billion almost like that and that that was a really kind of sobering a really sobering way of presenting that information, actually, which we get told a lot about in the media, um, but I, I've not seen it presented as effectively as that, actually. I, I really, I thought it was very, very effective, and just knowing that that's one person's lifetime, I felt because it was basically him going through all the years where he'd been sort of monitoring wildlife and things like that, and it was changing in in his lifetime. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was quite shocking I think quite a few people said they're very hard hit by it yeah I was I went home and had well I was at I was at home because there's a pandemic gone but um <laughs> you know I went to bed and kind of sat there and I thought oh wow okay which is not something new you know we get blasted by all this environmental news all the time um and it's, it's quite easy to get overwhelmed by it I think um but this one in particular this one and extinction the facts that he's both done because it's David Attenborough telling you this for you know even for someone who is very aware of the environmental crisis as you are it was it was having sir david say it really put a new whole new spin on it i thought i think there is in in that way though i'm hopeful that if people are going to listen to anyone it's going to be him mm. so this is his kind of attempt to like he's on instagram now he's really really trying to just reach as many people um, especially the younger generation, because I think he's he's made that quite clear. It has to be down to us to reshape the world as we move forward. If we want to make it sustainable in somewhere that is is habitable, basically. So I, I think it's, it's great that he is doing that and, and trying to spread the message more. He is, I think, the closest thing to God we will ever find on this planet. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'm, convinced, I'm not entirely convinced he's not part god anyway but yeah but yeah I, I i i personally would worship at the altar but that's just me 
Um, yeah. So would you like, shall we pivot away from the recent uh, film? And would you like to talk about your animal of the week episode? What are we calling it? Animal of the week? Uh, I think animal of the week. And if we do more than a couple episodes, then it's, yeah. yeah. Sorry, um, no one cares. <laughs> so yeah, my animal this week um, is a tardigrade. Woo! Woo! We love tardigrades. Um, they're tiny and you can't see them. And they're just, they're, they fascinate me. Um, <laughs> so, as you know, I probably like small kind of parasite looking things. Um, and so they're also known as water bears or moss piglets, which I just love. <laughs> love um, maybe I'll put moss piglet on my dating profile then, actually. <laughs> <laughs> moss piglet, and what was the other one? Primal uh, cow? Primal no. cow. <laughs> oh my god, that should be our band name. Moss piglet and primal cow. <laughs> oh yes, I love it. Um, so why tardigrades are just so, I don't know, impressive to me is um, they can basically survive just about anything. So they can survive dehydration, they could survive microwaving, um, temperatures as hot as 150 degrees Celsius or as low as minus 273 degrees Celsius. Um, they can cope with ionization of space. Um, they took some out to space and they fully just survived for like 10 days. Um, <laughs> which, yeah, they just casually astronauts traveling with tardigrades, which was cool. Um, and I love this quote. They Someone said, if there was a nuclear holocaust, um, it is said that the tardigrade may be the last creature standing. Um, More than the cockroach. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's. In which case, the tardigrades are probably fine with the planet being on fire now. <laughs> I they they could honestly survive anything, and part of the reason they can do this is because they can display something called cryptobiosis. So what that means is they can shut down basically their entire body, so they can lose over ninety nine percent of water in their bodies and oh, just shrivel up, and just all their organs basically well. I don't even know if they have organs. They're like one millimetre long. But anyway. Very, very um, small organs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like miniature. But basically everything shuts down. They shrivel up and they can be suspended in animation for three decades. Oh, my God. In, but, in fact, that's that's a question. How big are tardigrades? Because even though they're called water bears, they're, they're just not bear size, are they? You wouldn't see one walking about. If you did, we, we would think we'd been invaded by aliens. <laughs> <laughs> If you haven't looked one up, I I strongly recommend go look up a picture of a tardigrade because they have eight limbs, I think, with these. They have retractable claws. Love it. And they're up one millimetre is the biggest that they get. And they've got like this central tube like feeding structure on the front of their face, which looks a like, like a me. Huh? <laughs> it's a bit like me. <laughs> Do you also like suck up algae with it? Yeah, that's what what I spend most of my time doing, actually. Yeah, especially <laughs> during lockdown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they're just the weirdest looking things. And what's there's just so many of them as well. There's, I think, 1,100 species of tardigrade. Um, um, is, it, is, is tardigrade one thing or is it a, a genus? Well, they have their own phylum, um, which is tardigrader. Um, so yeah, just 
I think this because chordates is a phylum mm. is that right yeah so if you think about what groups are in the chordates yeah basically <laughs> all things that we consider animals us um small rodents massive bears they're all within the chordates and so this is how diverse tardigrades are um, they've got a whole phylum to themselves so where do they are they animals are they within animals? okay yeah um they're not like some weird plant that's pretending to be an animal no they are animals but i don't i really really struggle in my head to picture where they fit into absolutely (laughs) anything else on our planet so are they have they been around a long time I, i assume they're so indestructible they've been around forever yeah so they're they're probably quite old on the family tree yeah i imagine because I mean, they're found on basically all habitats on Earth. Mm. And for that to happen, they would have, they need to be around for, mil- I don't know, want to say millions of years? I don't know, let's just look this up. What, what do they do? What's their, what's their thing? What's their jam? Tigers are predators, ele- elephants do, you know, elephant stuff. What do tardigrades do? What's the point of the tardigrade? <laughs> I mean, you're asking all the, all the important questions here. Um, I feel like they're just indestructible little hoovers like (laughs) they just go around hoovering up algae um and they just dehydrate themselves and then wait for opportune conditions so are they Um, are they are they predators herbivores detritivores allivores um I think they eat bacteria and algae as their mate main thing so i just looked up they are 600 million years old and they precede the dinosaurs oh damn yeah your girl precedes the dinosaurs wow (laughs) and i don't have a microscope but i know you do i do Uh, i have a very old microscope so if you want to see them apparently what you have to do is find some like wet leaves or a clump of moss or something yeah uh, and then soak it because you want them to come out of this weird dehydrated state. And then you squeeze like the, the moss or the leaves or whatever, and then collect the liquid, and then you drop a few of the drops of the liquid onto a microscope or like into a pot, like <gasps> a pet dish. I'm definitely gonna go and find my tardigrades. We're going on a bear hunt. We're gonna catch a <laughs> not very big one. because We're gonna catch a tiny one. <laughs> That's yeah. so cool. Oh, yeah, I, love I love them. And it'd be really cool if you have to let us know if you do, if you do find any. Yeah, I'll, I will, I will go looking for tardigrades. That's so exciting. Yeah, awesome. I mean, I feel like I'm definitely not qualified for this. If you don't know us, Emma is the person who likes <laughs> parasites and things down microscopes and all the kind of weird shit that probably gives you, I don't know, really runny bums. And I'm <laughs> really Rob, not. Make sound like a really interesting person. Yeah, yeah, and I'm really not like that. I like, an, you know, a nice leopard. Give me some megafauna. <laughs> See, I feel like if we were looking at leopards, I'd be looking at the ticks on the leopard, and Roby would be like, "What are you doing? They're they're tiny. You can't see them." <laughs> this is the difference between Emma and I. Yeah, and, you know, you'd be looking at the poo. <gasps> yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not weird I promise I just really like parasites and yeah she's really weird she's like really really weird <laughs> thanks Ruby that's okay I got you back it's fine. You. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Um, so, are you uh, are you done with tardigrades? Is there more? There's so much more, but I'll leave it there and let people look okay. them up. Every <laughs> time. Uh, so, what's next? Um, shall I do the world? I tell you what, because we're both doing the beavers. Shall we do our world conservation next? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to do Tasmanian yeah. devil? So. I am going to tell you about the reintroduction of the Tasmanian devil to the Australian mainland. Reintroduction, I hear you say. What do you mean? Well, Tasmanian devils are not actually just from Tasmania. They used to live across the whole of Australia. Um, but around 3,000 years ago, they disappeared on the mainland. Hence why they're called Tasmanian devils. Tasmania obviously being the island off like the butt end of Australia. Um, and no one's quite sure why. We think it might be the appearance of the dingo um, when they were introduced by uh, Australian Aboriginal settlers, or the very first of them at least. Um, so the Tasmanian devil, for those Latin lovers out there, is Sarcophilus harrisi, or harrisi. Sarcophilus harrisi, I think. And it's a member of Dasuridae, which is a carnivorous group of marsupials. And after the extinction of the thylacine in 1936, the famous Tasmanian tiger, not a tiger at all, a marsupial, but anyway, it became the largest carnivorous marsupial remaining, which is cool, except that's quite sad because it's only the size of a small dog. And we lost all the bigger ones when humans turned up and mucked everything up, essentially, with the megaphone. <laughs> it's a shame because Tasmania is obviously like Australia has had so much kind of unique evolutionary history and the fact that it's been able to evolve for millions of years basically without contact from the rest of the world and then as soon as you get settlers coming in bringing in cats and foxes and sort of invasive species in a sense it messes a lot of things up yeah and Tasmanian devils weren't the only things really hit hard I mean Tasmania as an island I think lost its native subspecies of emu um, and at least 13 other marsupial species were driven to extinction there. So, yeah, you probably know the listener at home might know the Tasmanian devil from their face cancer. They have really bad facial tumours, which is really wracking havoc, have havoc, sorry, havoc <laughs> <laughs> on wild populations. Um, so it's in the news a lot because I think that was I mean, there are diseases in, in a lot of wildlife populations, but that was the first time kind of people were being exposed to all like these massive growth tumours on, on the face. I think people were quite shocked to see that. Yeah, yeah, it was crazy. Um, and in when the face tumour pandemic, I guess, was kicking off, a conservation organisation called Aussie Ark uh, started a essentially cancer-free population. Um, which they were then breeding in order to kind of create a failsafe if all the wild devils were lost to this face cancer. And they have just released, well, I'm not sure how many they released. I've looked at four different websites. One website says 15, one says 26, and one says 30. So they've lost, they've released between 15 to 30 face cancer-free devils in the, well, in a 500 hectare predator-free sanctuary in the Barrington Tops National Park, just north of Sydney. So this is the first time an Australian carnivore, native carnivore, has returned to the mainland in 3,000 years. That's it, that's so impressive. And I just think 
it's amazing that they're doing that because they're kind of saying how positive I mean they're hoping it'll be a very positive kind of change on the ecosystem because they can actually shape kind of help shape ecosystems in a, in a positive way can't they yeah it's thought that a bit like beavers and a bit like wolves they are something of an ecosystem engineer so they're voracious scavengers so they can get rid of all these carcasses which would otherwise just lie there and rot um but they're also hunters and quite efficient ones as well um so they'll keep overabundant herbivores and feral pests like introduced deer cats weasels uh foxes at bay i think that is what they're hoping for the most that they'll start eating all the feral introduced carnivores that, that we've kind of flooded us mainland australia with because i think they were saying as well like the knock-on effects from that so if you drive away things like cats and foxes you're going to get a boost in the number of small native mammals so things like quolls and bandicoots and what they do is kind of like burying leaf litter um, and so especially with all the forest fires that they've had in Australia, they're kind of saying if you bring back these small mammals or let them recover, there's less kind of flammable material. And so it could actually kind of improve the quality of forests like generally. Which is incredible. Who would have thought a predator would increase the health of not just the soil, but the whole forest? It's, it's insane. Um, but yeah, that is the plan with the Tasmanian devil, Sarcophilus harrisi. Um, and if you want to keep track of this reintroduction, you can go to the fantastically named devilcomeback.org. Uh, and they've got these two devils called Lisa and Jackson, uh, who are the two that are going to be the kind of social media flagships of it. And they're looking at tracking devices and camera traps to monitor how they do. So I will definitely be going to devilcomeback.org and following Lisa and Jackson on their lovely reintroduction to their ancestral home. Me too. I'm going to look them up. They sound <laughs> that sounds brilliant. And also, there's another really good book which Roby actually got me for my birthday, um, which is called Tasmanian Devil by David Owen and David Pemberton. Um, and it's really good, really good book. Just sort of an insight into Tasmanian devils and and their life. Yeah. When did I? Was that like two years ago? I think. Yeah, that was first year at uni. You got me that. Oh, I'm so nice. Oh. You are. You're lovely. <laughs> 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 so yeah that is the Tasmanian devil reintroduction Emma what is your global conservation story mine is about vaquitas um which I'm probably going to butcher this latter name and Roby's going to kill me but I'm going to share the latter name anyway <laughs> so Focoena sinus Focana F no not F P-H-O-C-O-E-N-A yeah, Focana. Focana sinus. Yes, and it's in the family Focanidae. Funny, fun fact. Um, so, vaquitas, you might not have heard of them, and there's probably a good reason for that. They're incredibly, inc incredibly endangered. Um, there's thought to be between 10 and 15 individuals left on the planet. Ah, that's not enough. No, it's not. That, it really, really isn't. That's and, extinction vortex right there. Yeah. I mean, full credits, there are some fantastic, fantastic conservation groups and individuals and researchers who are doing everything they can to try and, and bring them back. One of the sad things about vaquitas is that they tried captive breeding programs with them, but realised that they didn't do well in captivity at all. And I think 
it was at least two, maybe more individuals actually died in the process of trying to get them to captivity and to breed them. So they decided there's so few individuals, they're not going to try that again. So it's kind of relying on on changing local sort of government practices and, and fishing practices to try and and keep the population going. But like Roby says, like 10 to 15 in 10 to 15 individuals really is going down kind of an extinction vortex because there's so few of them. Um, why are there so few of them? I mean, the, the main it's interesting. There's sort of several different reasons, but the main one is gill net fishing. Um, so I don't know if you know what that is. I had to look up what this type of fishing is. I've heard of it a lot. And whenever I read it, I'm like, oh, yeah, gill net fishing. That's super bad. But I actually don't know what it is. It sounds really, really inhumane, but I, it's very quick and it's convenient and it's what fishermen use. But there's an attempt to try and change it. So what it is, is a piece of net that is just ha- hanging down in the water column. Um, and what happens is that so fish can go through, they can get their heads through, but not their bodies. And so when they try to go backwards to pull themselves out, their gills get stuck. Um, oh, right. And of course, a lot of fish can't swim backwards anyway. Yeah. And the problem with this is not only is that sort of inhumane for, for, for fish, the fact that they've got their gills, gills stuck and it'll be a lot of sort of probably discomfort and, and pain and things like that. It's You've got all the bycatch as well. So you've got um, sort of turtles, rays, dolphins, whales, porpoises. So within porpoises are the vaquitas. Um, so the vaquitas are actually the smallest cetacean in the world. So cetaceans is whales, dolphins and porpoises together. Um, and so because these gill nets are designed to sort of catch large fish, because that's what's good for the fishing industry, a lot of them get stuck. Um, so there's a big sort of campaign to try and provide alternatives because there are there are alternative nets um, and sort of providing alternatives to the fishermen as well because this is their livelihood. You you can't have conservation without involving the local people. Um, and and I, then I guess that's interesting that note about them being the smallest cetaceans um, because I think. I think, and I may be wrong here, uh, that's part of the reason why there's been so little historic conservation on them, in that we only knew they were only described in the 1980s, I think. And so we have no idea of historical abundance. Um, And it's very hard to conserve a species, A, if you're that small and you're looking for them in the ocean, um, and B, if you have no knowledge about how many there used to be so you ha- so you have no way of knowing how many there should be um i think the only censuses i've seen one was in 1997 which estimated about 550 individuals by nine by 2007 that had dropped to 150 yeah which is crazy no i think that is a good point because i think it makes it very hard they're, they're very shy um and because they're porpoises they don't have kind of surface display behavior like dolphins do so they won't breach or they won't be jumping out of the water so even though they're in a really really small area so it's in the sea of um cortez in the gulf of, of mexico so between mexican mainland and baja california is is where they're found 
Um, which is a place that Emma did forget existed once and we will never let her live it down. <laughs> oh, I'm not good with names of seas, okay? <laughs> but yeah, even though it is a tiny, tiny area, they are really hard to see, um, even for the people studying them. And actually there was someone giving a lecture saying that um, some people actually considered them to be mythical creatures and they only believed that they existed when they were washed up dead because they'd never seen them. And oh, so they... Yeah, and so it makes it very hard to conserve them if people don't don't have a connection to them. And then another really kind of interesting threat, which is something I hadn't realised. So, you know, last week I was talking about the shark fin ban that had come into Florida and they arrested 12 people and they seized a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Um, within that shipment were Totoaba bladders. Um, I don't know if you remember me mentioning this. Um, I remember the bladders. What on earth is a toto totoaba? Totoaba? Wait, hang on. Totoaba. Totoaba. Yeah. What is totoaba? Totoabas. I had not heard of them or even associated their link with porpoises. Um, but they are these huge fish that can grow up to seven feet long. So this is bigger than vaquitas. And bigger Um, than me, (laughs) (laughs) because I am the only valid unit of measurement. (laughs) Of course. Um. But they're really, really big. And apparently they used to be found in, in like shawls of like hundreds of them. And they are now critically endangered themselves. But the reason because this is because their swim bladder. So that's the organ that makes sort of fish buoyant um, is seen as a massive. It's used in, in China and Asia, again, for kind of medicinal cultural purposes. So it's smuggled from Mexico, often via the US, to China. And so there are these massive illegal gill nets that are being put up to catch Totoaba because it's like ivory or rhino horns. Is That is the extent of the market. So you've got cartels and you've got narco traffickers illegally operating Totoaba fishing in Vaquita territory. And what, what is it about the swim bladder? What do they use the swim bladder for? Do you know? I think it's the same kind of medicinal. It is believed to cure various ailments. Oh my um, God. But they dry. It looks kind of like a jellyfish when it's dried. Oh. And so they dry it and ship it. Um, but it's the same level of kind of extreme as, as rider horns or, or ivory. Oh, my God. I just Googled it. And there's a photo of a dead vaquita and a dead totoaba. And the totoaba is bigger than the vaquita. Yeah, it's weird. It looks like a giant carp that's bigger than this small dolphin. (laughs) Yeah. And I think the problem was so there was there was some sort of positive um, sort of conservation that was going on. There was a change in, in government in Mexico and there was an effort to try and conserve the vaquita. And so they put up this um it was sort of like a no no fishing zone. I'm not entirely sure what it was called. I'll look it up. Um, but basically this area where they weren't allowed to fish or put gill nets down. But that was legal fishing. So that was your local Mexican um, fish, fishermen who were just trying to support themselves and their livelihoods. But at night you had all these. So basically it was like narcos like if you've watched narcos it's like cartels and all this illegal basically like they call the totoaba the cocaine of the sea so it's Uh, all this illegal stuff going on at night where they're going and putting the gill nets um and apparently there's a really good film called sea of shadows which is filmed by nat geo 
and it's all about them hunting these illegal cartel Totoaba people. Um, so I'm <laughs> definitely going to try and watch that. So it's not that the Totoaba is the food of the vaquita, it's that because the Totoaba are being fished with gillnets, the, va the vaquita are also being zapped with them. Yes, and because it's the same sort of area where they're found in, any of the legal laws that are put into place don't apply as long as there's still illegal Totoaba fishing. How did that how did that start though? Because obviously if the Totoaba lives in the Gulf of California, why do the the Southeast Asian food market associate it with medicinal purposes? Because obviously if these practices go back, you know, ages and ages, you can understand why they'd associate tiger or panda or rhino or elephant because they live around these animals. But a random fish which is found off Baja California, why? Why the Totoaba? I honestly have no idea and it intrigued me myself because I'd never heard of them until we did the thing about Florida last week. Mm. Um, and just show, I guess it just shows you how linked all, all the trade stuff is. But it does intrigue me. It's like, how has that become part of cultural sort of Chinese medicine yeah. when it's going from Mexico via the US to Asia. Yeah. Um, I mean, but, apparently, I'm just looking here, it says that Totoaba swim bladders in China are believed to treat fertility and circulatory problems. That's interesting. Hmm. I, just, I just really wonder where that started. Um, but there's there was a friend, so they have um, the International Save the Vaquita Day every year, and normally they go out on the streets, they get they get, talk to people, raise awareness, and obviously this year because of COVID, um, that wasn't possible. But there's they've made the entire event available for free on YouTube, so it's eight hours. I didn't watch it all, but <laughs> it's got some really good content. So you've got speakers, you've got videos, you've got someone who illustrates, who does scientific illustration, drawing a vaquita, like very, very cool information. Um, so I'll post the link in the comments um, and you can check out. They have some good recommendations of what you can do as an individual to help the vaquitas. And there's eight hours of awesome vaquita content. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to sit through all eight hours. That's a lot. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> cool. Or yeah, harrowing, but cool. Yeah, it was, it's quite disturbing when you get to that level of so few individuals. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking. I'm thinking. I might talk about Sumatran rhinos next. Uh, next podcast, and there's a similar situation there. There's about eighty, they think, left, and. At that level, or you know, nineteen vaquita is it nineteen vaquita? I think less, probably less. ten to fifteen. I mean, there's you've lost so much genetic diversity that even successful conservation measures, I, how can you overcome that much genetic loss? I know it's they're trying, but it's whether that's that's possible. Yeah. Right. Um, so, we've got like fifty minutes, do we want to try and do beavers? How how long have we got? Um, like probably like 10 minutes. Can we do beavers in 10 minutes? Ooh. Like five to 10 minutes. <laughs> um, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think we should leave it for next time so we can really get into the beavers? I think maybe, um, because we did do a very long one last time. And um, we do deserve to give beavers their due, I think. <laughs> I think we do. Um, found a really, really cool article about beavers and 
an epic map of where all legal and sort of just random people who've released beavers. I um, know we have illegal and we have legal and illegal beavers. Oh, I love that map. That's fantastic. It's all the legal and illegal beaver things. So you guys will hear more about that next time. Yes. And you will also hear about beavers on the river otter just to get your head around <laughs> that. Uh, why why do people make things so confusing <laughs> no i really it really bugs me can't we have beavers on the river beaver and otters on the river otter and then beavers and otters on the river beavotter <laughs> <laughs> wow Roby, wow yeah can you tell i did like an english a level it was really good <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah so i think we'll leave it there um hope you guys enjoyed our latest ramble and you've got beavers and awesome if you are you going to do rhinos next time well well we, we keep this is the thing we've got such a backlog now we need to do beavers i want to do the reintroduction and the rebreeding of the oryx and also rhinos but you can do a whole thing on rhinos um uh i don't know what do i do there's too much to talk about <laughs> uh at least we're continuing these podcasts for the foreseeable future so we can ramble about them endlessly Yeah, okay, well, we will catch you guys later. Bye. Bye, see you next time.